beautiful for spacious skies, for amber waves of grain, for purple mountain majesties above the fruited plains. America, America, God shed His grace on thee. And crown thy good with brotherhood From sea to shining sea Oh, beautiful for pilgrims' feet Whose stern impassioned stress A thoroughfare for freedom beat Across the wilderness America, America, God meant <coughs> Confirm thy soul with self-control By liberty in law O beautiful for heroes brew In liberating strife who more than self their country loved, and mercy more than life. America, America, may God thy gold refine, till all success be nobleness, and every gain divine. O beautiful for patriot dream that sees beyond the years, thine alabaster cities gleam, undimmed by human tears. America, America, shed His grace on thee and crown thy good with brotherhood from sea to shining sea. Amen. Thank you. May be seated. God has sure given us a wonderful country, hasn't He? We thank the Lord for it. It certainly is not without its problems. Uh, we need to be praying. The Bible tells us to pray for those that are in leadership over us. And let's take our Bibles this morning. If you will, turn to Philippians chapter number 3. Philippians chapter number 3. And uh, hold your place there. We're going to uh, take a few moments to give some background information. And then uh, we'll be uh, a little ways into our, our message this morning before we'll read our text. And so just hold your place there, if you would, in Philippians chapter number 3. Philippians chapter number 3. From the time of Christ, shortly after He ascended back into heaven, a lot of people began to persecute Christians, those that 
named the name of Christ. Great persecution came for many years. And off and on, since that first century or so, uh, there have been waves of great persecution and times where the persecution was lightened up. The Great Inquisition took place between uh, 1200 and 1500 or so uh, A.D. And after the Inquisition was over in the time of the, the Dark Ages, is what it's referred to, one thing happened to bring them out of the Dark Ages that was so significant, and that was a fellow by the name of Johann Gutenberg who, in, who invented the printing press. You say, Brother Greg, why in the world would that be important? Because the printing press was invented for one reason, and that was to print the Scriptures in the common language of man. So that every man, and Gutenberg's heart was that every man could have access to a copy of Scripture to read it for himself. When the Scriptures began to become available to the common man, uh, great revival and great awakenings began to happen. Some of the great, great revivals that we read about in history took place, but along with a lot of that were a lot more persecution. Most countries uh, had state churches, and it was the law that the uh, the uh, members or the citizens of that nation had to be members of the state church. There was some doctrinal error that had crept in. Infant baptism is one of the big doctrinal errors that crept in in those days. It was a result of Another era of baptismal regeneration where people were teaching that in order to be saved, you had to be baptized first before you could be saved. And that the baptism was the salvation. And so the natural uh, tendency of that era would be to say, then we need to baptize at the earliest age possible. And so infant baptism came to be. And almost all of the state churches, if you take time to read history, uh, during that period of time, believed in infant baptism and baptismal regeneration. But there was... A small remnant, there always is, isn't there, from the time of Christ, who held to the value of Scripture, the purity of Scripture. They wanted their doctrine to come from no other place than the Bible. They weren't going to be told by uh, the leaders, the priests, the popes. They weren't going to be told what their doctrine was by men. They were going to search the Scriptures to see if they'd be so. And their doctrine came from this. These are the line of folks that... We have descended from as Baptists. Some people will try to tell you that Baptists were not around and were not anywhere in existence till the 1500s. Uh, with John Smythe in England, they believe is where he began. But the truth of the matter is, although they were not called Baptists, they held to the same doctrines and distinctives of the Baptist faith all the way from the time of Christ. And they've been very careful to have purity of doctrine. Great persecution still was happening overseas. The Anglican Church, uh, depending on what uh, country you were from, the Lutheran Church in Germany, the Anglican Church in England. Catholic Church, of course, had great reign still and great power in many of the countries, Spain and some of those areas, Italy. And a group of people uh, decided that they were going to reform the church. started with uh, Martin Luther and that group. They decided they were going to reform the church and from the inside out try to correct it. And it was a noble effort, but the truth of the matter is they had a wrong foundation to start with, and so trying to reform something that had a wrong foundation was very difficult. And so they had some folks that came out of that called the Puritans. The Puritans were there to try to purify the doctrine of the church. Their intent was to keep the church intact, but try to purify it. But you also had a group of folks that were known 
as pilgrims. Pilgrims were separatists. They didn't belong to the church uh, because they didn't believe that the doctrine of the church was right to begin with. In 1620, the pilgrims made the journey over to Plymouth Rock. Many of you read about that in history. Ten years later, in 1630, the Puritans followed over. And while these folks came to escape persecution and they wanted to get religious liberty, the truth of the matter is they did not come to give religious liberty. In fact, in in the state of Massachusetts, the colony of Massachusetts at the time, uh, where many of some of our great Baptist preachers came from and came out of, uh, in Massachusetts, a letter was written from uh, a man over in England, a Baptist minister over in England, and said, some of our Baptist brethren are wanting to come to the new land in search of religious liberty. Will they be welcome in your colony? And the, uh, the Congregationalist Church, the state church in Massachusetts said, no, because they're in error, and uh, Massachusetts did not have religious liberty. Get this. They did not guarantee religious liberty in the state of Massachusetts until 1833. Some of us think, well, when the war for independence happened, then we had religious liberty. Oh, no. No, no, there was a great price that was paid even in the beginning of our country. The whole purpose and establishment for the country that was here in the United States of America, although there was a long list, and if you take the time to read the second or third paragraph of the Declaration of Independence, you'll see a long list of grievances that we had with England. But one of the key ones, one of the top ones, was the fact that we wanted the liberty to worship as our consciences dictated. By the way, that's one of the great tenets of the Baptist faith. Individual soul liberty. To have the opportunity to hold a Bible on our laps for ourselves. We don't have to go to a priest to see what we believe. We don't have to listen to a preacher in a pulpit to see what we believe. We can come to God's Word and see what we believe. And it helps keep doctrinal error out of the church when every person sitting in the church has a Bible on their lap. And if the preacher preaches something other than what the Bible says, everybody can see that for themselves. And they can serve and worship as their conscience dictates. In 1631, a fellow by the name of Roger Williams came over and he settled first in Salem, Massachusetts. And then he moved from there because he did not believe in infant baptism. He was baptistic in his doctrine, and they banished him. And back then, banishment was um, one of these things that was uh, not just kicked out of the colony, but they took all of your possessions, uh, they took all of your clothing, they took all of your food, put you in a boat on the river, and sent you down the river. And if you survived, you survived. And if not, um, then, then you, you, were, you, were, you died from the banishment. Well, he was supposed to show up for his banishment, and he fled and decided he wasn't going to show up for it. And for 14 months, he was a fugitive. He crossed uh, the river, went over into what's now Rhode Island, bought some land from the Indians. Roger Williams became the first missionary to the Native American Indians here. And he started a church in Rhode Island in the Newport area. He was there for just a few months and then uh, left permanently and went to help with the Indians. Another man by the name of John Clark followed him and was what we refer to as the first Baptist preacher in the United States of America. You say, why is that important? <clears throat> John Clark uh, had a couple fellows in his church. One of them was named John Crandall. One of them was named Obadiah Holmes. And they had another fellow that lived in Lynn, Massachusetts, that had traveled over to Newport, uh, Rhode Island. 
and had become a member of John Clark's church because he believed in the Baptistic doctrine of the Scriptures. When he went back to Lynn, Massachusetts, he could not belong to the state church. He was an elderly man in his 90s. He became very ill and had a lot of persecution. He could not worship and was very dejected. He could not worship in the church there. So John Clark and John Crandall and Obadiah Holmes go to Lynn, Massachusetts to try to cheer up a brother in Christ, a member of their church. While they were there in the privacy of Mr. Witter's home, Brother Clark began to preach Scripture, which, by the way, when a bunch of Baptists get together, the only thing better than the food is the preaching. Amen? We always want to preach. And uh, he got in that house, and they began to sing songs, began to preach. While they were doing it, some magistrates from the township came and arrested all three men, told them they were to pay a fine or to be well whipped. John Clark and John Crandall both had their fines paid before they could object to it. Both of them had objections to their fines being paid, but it had already been done and they, would not, they were not allowed to recant the, the fine. And Obadiah Holmes had hit the same person, tried to pay Obadiah Holmes' fine, but by the time he had heard wind of it, he said, no, for conscience' sake, I cannot let you do that. He said, for me to pay a fine would be to admit that I am guilty and I have done nothing wrong but preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they took him to the whipping post and gave him 30 lashes. The man who did it spit on his hands three times and with all of his strength in the records gave him 30 lashes with a three-cord whip, meaning there were 90 stripes laid on Obadiah Holmes' back. When they took him down from the whipping post, Obadiah Holmes said that famous phrase, you have beaten me as with roses. God was gracious to him during the beating and allowed him to be so disassociated and so overwhelmed with the presence of Christ in that moment that the pain was not even there. But for many, many weeks afterwards, in order for him to sleep, he had to lean on his knees and elbows to get physical relief from the beating. This is some of the price that has been paid for you and I to sit here today. 1663, a charter was finally given to the colony of Rhode Island. John Clark, after leaving Lynn, Massachusetts, went to England and spent 11 years petitioning Charles I for a charter. And Charles I finally gave a charter to to the colony of Rhode Island. And for the very first time in the history of man... There was never any other time that there was a civil government that issued a document guaranteeing the religious liberty of the inhabitants of a colony or state. The charter at Rhode Island was the very first such document in our history, in the history of all of mankind. In the 1760s, we're getting close to the time for our war for independence. There was still a lot of persecution going on. In Connecticut, there was a lady by the name of Elizabeth Bacchus who was a Baptist woman raising her children in the Baptist faith, and uh, she was imprisoned for uh, having the holding to uh, the Baptist faith. Her son Isaac Bacchus uh, began struggling and fighting with uh, some of the uh, the magistrates and some of the political leaders of the day, petitioning them for re, uh, redress of uh, religious liberty to be able to gain religious liberty. And so, about 1760s, when we start seeing some of the first inklings of people that began fighting back for their religious liberty and to get religious liberty in other colonies. 
In Virginia, 43 pastors were arrested and beaten, Baptist preachers, were arrested and beaten. Uh, some of them uh, had some lawyers that came to their defense, some lawyers from the Pennsylvania area. Uh, these uh, lawyers were named Patrick Henry. You might recognize that name from, Henry, from uh, history. And uh, another fellow by the name of James Madison, who's known as the father of our Constitution. These lawyers and Thomas Jefferson, these three men, began to defend some of the preachers there in Virginia. Several of the preachers that had been arrested were being indicted, and the indictment was, this was the exact quote for the indictment for these men, for preaching the gospel of the Son of God. That was their indictment. James Madison came to the courthouse. He listened as the prosecutor laid out the case for these men preaching things that were contrary to the state church. When it was time for him to give defense, James Madison stood and he took the indictment and he held it up for a moment. He began to wave it in the air. And he said, Sirs, am I to understand that these men have been indicted for preaching the gospel of the Son of God? <clears throat> for preaching the gospel of the Son of God. And he's waving it around. He lays it down on the table and raises his hands and his eyes to heaven and says, Great God! For preaching the gospel of the Son of God. And he quotes that four, five, six times. And the man that was judging the case gaveled and said, Bailiff, let these men go, for they have done nothing wrong. But 43 of them went to prison and were beaten for it. During the Revolutionary War, the War for Independence, there were only 13% of the colonies that were Baptist, of the, the folks that lived in the colonies were Baptist. But Baptists made up 40% of the chaplains in the Revolutionary Army. It's interesting, George Washington said, I like the Baptists because they can shoot straight. Isn't that good? Thomas Jefferson attended the Buck Mountain Baptist Church that was pastored by a man by the name of Andrew Tribble. Andrew Tribble would hold church business meetings once a month in their church, the Buck Avenue Baptist Church. One night, Thomas Jefferson came to visit him in his home, and they sat down together and had a meal together. And uh, Mr. Tribble said, uh, how do you like our church? And Thomas Jefferson said, I like it very well. He said, in fact, your form of government in your church is exactly the form of government that our country needs. The influence of Baptist men in our country. James Madison, who was the father of our Constitution, uh, was uh, so busy at the, at the Continental Congress as they were getting the Constitution uh, written that uh, Patrick Henry was back home uh, petitioning to go to the, uh, the ratifying convention for our Constitution. And uh, had a lot of support, and it was looking like they would send Patrick Henry instead of James Madison for the ratifying conference of the Constitution. And that would have been disastrous, because had James Madison not been there, our Constitution would not have been ratified the way that it is today. James Madison came home, and he realized the importance of this, and he went to meet with a fellow by the name of John Leland. John Leland was a Baptist preacher that was supporting Patrick Henry and had great influence through that area of the country. He went and met with John Leland. He said, uh, Mr. Leland, if I don't go to this meeting, our Constitution has a good chance of not passing. 
He said, what is it that is so uh, dire for you to support uh, Patrick Henry instead of me to go to the conference? And John Leland said this, there is no guarantee in the Constitution for religious liberty. James Madison said, if you'll put your backing behind me and support me to go, he said, the very first amendment that we will make is that Congress shall make no law that is going to prohibit the free exercise or the establishment of churches. And true to his word, when James Madison got back with the support of John Leland, a Baptist preacher, he was able to make that amendment to the Constitution, and we've enjoyed it to this day. You say, how do we have religious liberty? A lot of Baptists got together and said, we believe in religious liberty. Uh, You know, somebody said years ago, uh, Baptists may not always be right, but they're never in doubt. We may not be right on every issue, but I will say this. When it comes to the issue of religious liberty, it is a God-given, and as our Constitution and our Declaration talk about, it is a right that is given to us. In fact, Thomas Jefferson put it in the Declaration of Independence that it's an inalienable right. It cannot be taken away. It's given to us by our Creator, not by any form of government. Government doesn't tell us this morning that we get to meet as Keith Heights Baptist Church. God in heaven told us that. During the Revolutionary War, George Washington was so influenced by many of the Baptist preachers. At the time of the beginning of the war, he was a member at St. Paul's Episcopal Church in New York City. The problem with that was the Episcopal Church officially was in opposition to the war for independence. and It was kind of hard for the leader of the Continental Army to be sitting there in the church service and the preacher preaching against it. So he went across town to the Fifth Avenue Baptist Church where a man by the name of uh, John Gano was pastor. Um, He was baptized and became a Baptist at the Fifth Avenue Baptist Church before the war was over. A lot of people don't realize that George Washington was a Baptist. And uh, there is a picture, if you go over to Kansas City to uh, the William Jewell College, there's an actual painting of George Washington surrendering his battle sword to his preacher, John Gano. And the sword is also on display right next to the picture. This church, this Fifth Avenue Baptist Church, was historically and distinctively Baptist. It held to the tenets of the Baptist doctrines and the Baptist faith and the Baptist distinctives. They had several pastors that followed John Gano. Thomas Armitage and some others. Thomas Armitage was a good one. Then there were some others that came after him that became very, very liberal. Today, that church is known as Riverside Church in New York City, is the most liberal church in the United States of America. I say all that to say this. A great price has been paid for us to sit here and to buy our conscience as God gives it to our hearts through Scripture to worship what we believe to be right according to the Bible. But how does a church get from being the Fifth Avenue Baptist Church where the first president of our great United States became a Baptist and learned the Baptist faith to becoming the Riverside Church, which is now the most liberal church in America in just a couple of hundred years? What happened? If you will, look with me in Philippians chapter number 3. And I want us to look at some things from Scripture. Because I want us to see today some of the things that will cause a church to leave the truth of God's Word. 
In Philippians chapter number 3, we'll begin reading in verse number 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the, I rejoice uh, in the Lord to write the same things to you. To me it is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the uh, concision, for we are the circumcision, which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus. And notice this in verse number 3. And have no confidence... In the flesh, though I might have also confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust the flesh, I more. He said, listen, he said, we ought not to have confidence in the flesh. Paul's telling them this. So if there was ever a man out there that could have confidence in the flesh, he said, it would be me. Look at my background. And he goes through this huge background of why he would have the credentials to have confidence in the flesh and for Paul to just get by on his own power and his own strength and his own wisdom and his own teaching, Paul was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was taught by the uh, Gamaliel, one of the most knowledgeable men of the day. And if, if any man that ever was voted most likely to succeed in his school, it would be the Apostle Paul. And yet he says, I have no confidence in the flesh. I have no confidence in the flesh. Can I tell you, one of the first things that will be the downfall of a church is when they begin to say, we're okay. Uh, God's been here, and boy, He's done some great things, and we love what God has, has done here. But then we begin to do it on our own power. It's almost like when we were needing God to do something, we used to pray and ask Him to help us do it. But now that He has done something, oftentimes we cease praying for Him to do anything further. The church at Laodicea was like that. They thought that they were wealthy, that they were rich and increased with goods. They thought of that. They thought, boy, God has sure been gracious. God has sure blessed. And they began to have confidence in the flesh. Look with me, if you will, in 2 Timothy chapter number 3. 2 Timothy chapter number 3. Paul's telling Timothy, and he says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers. And all their confidence is in themselves. They love themselves more than God. Without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinence, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. How did they get to the place in verse 3 and 4? They found themselves going through the process found in verse number 2. They were heady. They were high-minded. They were covetous. They were boasters. They were lovers of themselves. Their confidence was in the flesh. Can I tell you, the first step of a downfall to a church is when we get so comfortable with what God has done that we no longer seek for Him to continue to do them. How many of you have ever heard somebody say, Boy, I'll tell you, I, I remember a time when God did, and they'll go on to tell you something great God did in their church when they were younger or when they were in their past. Anybody ever hear anybody give a story like that? Uh, anybody ever given a story like that? I know I have. I, I've said, Boy, I'll tell you, I can remember back to when. And if we're not careful, we'll be so excited and so overjoyed with what God did in our past that we'll get confident in ourselves and we'll say, I don't need to pray for that like I used to. I don't need to ask Him to do those things like I used to. In fact, in the book of Jeremiah, chapter number 17, verse number 5, it talks about a man that uh, put his, uh, his strength in man 
and whose flesh is, is his arm is, is, is man, his, his strength is in man. The Bible refers to him in Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse number 5 as a cursed man. But you go on down to verse number 7, it says that there's a blessed man, and the blessed man is the one who puts his strength in the Lord, and in whose hope the Lord is. If we're not careful, we will get to the place where we are a Fifth Avenue Baptist church, like was found in New York City several hundred years ago. If we're not careful, if God doesn't come back in our lifetime, this church could very well become a Riverside church. If we're not careful to uphold the tenets and the faith of the Baptist faith, to hold to the truths of this book, look with me in verse number 6 of 2 Timothy chapter number 3. The Bible says, let's back up verse number 5, "...having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses, and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with divers lusts." Notice this, verse 7, "...ever learning, and never able to come to the knowledge of truth." Boy, that's a peculiar statement, isn't it? Now, as Janus and Jambres uh, withstood Moses, so do these also resist the what? Truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the what? Faith. When we have confidence in the flesh, the next thing that happens is there comes a spirit of disbelief or unbelief. We begin to lose this thing of faith. He says that they were reprobate concerning the faith. They were resisting the truth. Whenever they would hear it, they would resist it. In verse number 7, it says they were ever learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Their belief was shaken. Their faith was shaken. These are people that get along and, and uh, they're, they're the upper echelon and they're the intellects that have all these degrees behind their names. And, and you go to some of these <coughs> Bible seminaries and you go up to the, the professors and you say, do you believe the Bible to be 100% accurate and true? And they'll say, well, um, uh, well no, I, we can't take it all. As, and they'll explain it away. Well learned but not able to come to the knowledge of truth. Why? Because somewhere along the line, they put their confidence in the flesh and not in God. I've read in Scripture that God has promised that His Word would remain pure forever. That it would, that it would, be, uh, that it would be preserved to every generation. And, and I don't know about you, but I just have no other thing than to trust what God said. I don't, I don't get to the place where I say, okay, well, I think with my intellect and, and all the things I study, I can show why maybe this Bible isn't the, the, fully correct in every way. We start, we start chiseling away at that belief, don't we? Our faith begins to get shaken. If we're not careful, we'll put our confidence in the flesh. We'll quit seeking after God. And boy, I'll tell you, if there's ever a need for God's people to come together and say, Lord, we cannot do it, we must have you. We need your direction. We need your power. We need your strength. It's the day that you and I live in. And by the way, it's not the day as far as our lifetime is concerned. It's today we need it. We need it today. We must have the power of God. We must be be leaning upon Him for our strength. We must be leaning upon Him to remain steadfast. We find that there comes a spirit of unbelief. They have a form of godliness. Look with me in... Verse number 5 of the same chapter of 2 Timothy 3. Having a form of godliness, the Bible says, but denying the power thereof. The steps of coming from the Fifth Avenue Baptist Church to a Riverside Church. Confidence in flesh. It brings a spirit of disbelief or unbelief. We start doubting God's Word. Our faith begins to crumble and is shaken. 
Because of that, we have lost the power of God. Paul told Timothy, these folks that are doing this, they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. I've said this so often. In my lifetime, I have watched as we as Baptist people have defined ourselves by what we are not. We define ourselves by our standards. I'm thankful for standards. I love standards. I think they're given in Scripture. There's nothing wrong with them. But that's not what defines us. We think somebody that's a liberal is somebody whose culottes are a little bit too short. Can I tell you somebody that's a liberal is somebody that denies the Word of God? Should we be modest? Absolutely. Should our dress be appropriate? Absolutely. But that's not what defines us. That's the fruit of of what defines us. When we deal with the heart of the matter, when the doctrine of God's Word gets into our hearts, those standards just kind of take, take care of themselves, I've found. All of a sudden, I begin to want to please God in these areas. I no longer am doing a standard just because my pastor told me I have to, or because the people that I'm friends with at church, they all do it, so I better do it too. No, no, that's not a right reason. There ought to be standards in my life because I love God with all of my heart and I want to please Him. We lose a power, we lose the power of God on our lives because we define ourselves by what we are not rather than defining ourselves by what we are. We get to become accustomed to the same old thing. We go through the motions of doing our ministry every week. The church dwindles and it dies and the the, the congregation gets smaller and smaller and weaker and weaker and the Spirit of God just seems to be vacant from that place. Oh, may we help us, may God help us that we not ever get to a place here at Keitha Heights Baptist Church where we do not have the presence of God here. We go through the motions of doing ministry and we think that activity is spirituality. Can I tell you this? That's never the case. A love for God with all of our heart. A love for His Word with all of our heart produces the spirituality in us. The standards, the activity, the labor and ministry, those are all the fruit of what has come out of this. So often we get so busy teaching how-to and things that we ought to be doing as a church and we leave out the power of God entirely. I've been in churches that were very busy running buses and bringing people into church. I've watched them walk a lot of people down the aisle and dunk them in a baptistry. God's power be as far away from that church. His presence so far from there. Oh, I believe God is honored when people get saved. When people are baptized, I believe there's some great things there. But if all we're doing is trying to produce some kind of an outward shell of a product and trying to work outwardly in in serving, we've lost the power of God. Why? Because of confidence in the flesh that has shaken our faith and caused us to lose the power of God. We begin to have a form of godliness, a form, but deny the power thereof. Look with me if you will in verse number 3. The Bible says without natural effect. These are, these are the men who 
are lovers of their own selves, they're covetous, they're boasters, they're proud, they're blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, and holy. He says this in verse 3, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good. The final step into the reprobate process of a church is all of a sudden there is no Christ-likeness found anywhere near it. You go to the Riverside Church today and they'll have homosexual preachers in the pulpit. They preach things that are in direct opposition and directly opposed to God's Word. Why? Because they've leaned on the flesh that has shaken their faith, losing the power of God on their ministry, and they now are the way that the church of Laodicea was. When the Bible says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And I believe years ago at the Riverside Church, God was taken out of that church. He stands there at their door knocking and just let me in. Oh, may we protect that. May we protect and not get to this place where we become apathetic about our faith. Folks, a great price has been paid. We celebrate today religious liberty because men and women were willing to be beaten, imprisoned, banished. They were willing to be killed, to go into battle and face the onslaught of war, knowing they would not benefit from it. But they knew that down somewhere further down the road, there was coming a generation after them that would gain the benefits of their sacrifice. I am moved when someone sacrifices for me. That's why when I learned of my sin and I found out what God had done for me, it moved me. When I realized that I was lost in sin and was fighting a battle of sin that I could not win, there was a debt there that was owed that I could not pay. God sent His Son to die on a cross for me. He didn't owe it to me. There was nothing good about me. But He did. He died for me. I don't get over that easily. Neither do I get over when I begin to think of the great price that has been paid for me to have the great liberty to openly kneel or bow my head in a public place and pray to the God of heaven. To carry a Bible in my hand or put it on the dash of my car. And at any moment I want to, in this country, I can pull that book out and begin to read it. Because somebody was willing to give their life for me to have that privilege. May we hold these truths. Not just the truths of a civil government, but the truths of God's Word. May we not let them be shaken. May they not be eroded. May they... Remain steadfast. The Bible teaches us that the church 
is the pillar and the ground upon which truth rests. The psalmist said, if truth is fallen in the streets, what can the righteous do? Can I tell you today, we are in danger of truth that is left in our trust. We are in danger of letting that truth be eroded, to be fallen, to be denied, and if we're not careful, to be completely forgotten. May we not follow after the path of the church in New York City or others like it. But may we remain steadfast for two reasons. Because Christ gave His life for the church and the truth that it would preach. And because of the hundreds and thousands of lives that have also given their life for you and I to enjoy such wonderful freedom. Let's stand together, shall we, with heads bowed and eyes closed. you're here today and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, you don't know if you were to die right now, that you'd go to heaven. If you're, if you're hoping, if you're saying, boy, if I can just live a good enough life, I hope I make it to heaven, can I tell you this? You're lost. I don't mean that in a mean way. I mean that in a way that I care about your soul. Jesus said there's only one way to get to heaven, and it wasn't by doing our good works. It's by getting to a place where we realized we couldn't save ourselves. That Christ paid all of the price for us to be saved by dying on the cross, being buried and raising again from the dead. He paid that price for us and He gives it to us freely by saying all we have to do is put our faith in Him to trust Him for our salvation. For by grace are you saved, He said, through faith. And that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If you're here today and you say, Pastor, I don't know if I died right now that I'd go to heaven. I sure hope I would. I've lived a good life. I've tried to attend church. I've tried to, tried to be good to people. Can I tell you, that's, that's, nothing. that's not going to get you to heaven. The Bible tells us that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. God doesn't, is not impressed by those things. The only way that you and I get to heaven is by putting our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you're not saved, I'd sure love the opportunity in a moment when the piano and organ begin to play, if you would be willing to come forward. And we're going to have folks with their heads bowed. We're not going to embarrass you. I promise you we would not embarrass anybody. Nobody would even look. Nobody would even see anything. And besides that, we're around people here that if you got saved today would rejoice with you in that decision. But if you say, I'm not sure that I'm saved, I'd love it if you'd come forward and let us take the Bible and show you how you can be saved today. All you have to do is slip out of your seat and walk down here to the front, and we'll meet you down here and take the Bible and show you how you can be saved. For Christians that are here today, can we be resolved, even more resolved than we were when we came in here, that we are going to hold to the truths, the doctrine of this blessed book. We're not going to let them slip. We're going to continue to express and depend upon the strength of Almighty God to help us to uphold and to be steadfast in these things. We're not going to get to the place where we're going to trust the arm of flesh or our own strength to defend it, to keep this church what it's supposed to be. We're not going to depend on what we can do. 
But we're going to plead with God and ask for His aid in helping this church to be all that it should be for Him. Oh, that we would have some men and women today that would resolve in their hearts before God, Lord, I want to make sure that I am steadfast, unmovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord. Father, we pray that You'll bless the invitation. May You use it. Lord, may we be moved by the sacrifice of You and the sacrifice of others for our sake. Lord, may we recommit ourselves to for the generations that follow us. May we be resolved to uphold these great truths. That if your coming is another long while away yet, that this country would still be a Christian nation after we're gone. That our children and our grandchildren will know what it is to have a country that truly gives religious freedom. It holds to the truths and the sentence of this book. So, Father, bless the invitation. Use it as you would see fit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. With heads bowed, please, and eyes closed. If God has spoken to your heart today, perhaps you would come. If you're here and you need to be saved, please come forward. We'll be glad to show you from the Bible how you can be saved. As the piano and organ begin to play, if God has spoken with your heart, would you come today? Just a moment, we dismissed a word of prayer. I know some of you have got family commitments and things this afternoon, and I uh, want to wish you a happy 4th of July and Independence Day celebration. And uh, be careful out there today. A lot of folks on the road, and uh, if you're shooting fireworks, be careful with those, and uh, certainly enjoy the time with family. If you're able to stay for lunch, we have lunch downstairs, and I already saw some of it, and I'm ready to go. I'm excited about that. And uh, whether you're a member or visitor, you're welcome to stay for lunch if you'd like to. Our ladies put on a really good meal down there. You're going to miss it if you go. But uh, you're welcome to stay for lunch if you'd like to. And uh, then we have our 1 o'clock service at 1 if you'd like to be back for that as well. 
and uh, looking forward to a great time yet uh, this afternoon. Let's bow our heads in prayer and we'll be dismissed. Make sure you find our visitors today and greet them and welcome them to our service and let them know how glad we are they've been with us today. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful for the opportunity to preach it. We pray that you'd help us to leave with the messages and the truth upon our hearts and our minds, both from Sunday school and from the 11 o'clock hour. I pray that you would bless the food in the time of fellowship. And those that are going to spend time with family and friends this afternoon, I pray that you'd give them enjoyable time. I pray that you'd give them safety. And, oh Lord, may we uplift you in all that we say and all that we do, that we can bring glory to you and not a reproach. As we have opportunity, and perhaps there would even be some today, to share the gospel, I pray that you would help us to take those opportunities. May we uplift and strengthen the resolve of the great fathers of our country who knew what it was to take a stand for the truth of your word. May we uphold them. May we continue to honor them. And I pray that you'd help us to be steadfast in each of these areas. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.